Genesis chapter two, verse eight, listen to the word of the Lord. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden and there he put the man that he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the middle of the garden, tree of life, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the middle of the garden. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. First observation, did God put a bad choice in paradise? Yes. Why? Why would God put a bad option in paradise? If you have no other options, does choosing the only option count as much? God wants children who know love, who walk in love. He wants powerful people who make the right decision when they have other options. He does not want to simply remove all the bad options from the world and say, now, look, we made good people. You're not good people. If you can't have a bad option, therefore don't choose a bad option. You're good people if you can have a bad option and you choose not to because it's not what you want. Divine Parenting Strategy 101. Notice God doesn't say, on the day you eat from this, I'm going to kill you. It's not a threat. It's a warning. This tree is poisonous. If you eat it, something will happen that I don't want to happen to you. Genesis 3, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any of the trees in the garden? Is God trying to starve you people? What a dumb question. But, but notice the premise. He's doubling down, which he will do throughout this interaction. God's keeping all the good stuff for himself. God's withholding the good stuff. If you really want the good stuff, you gotta take matters into your own hands. You can't trust his judgment. You have to be the one who's looking out for you. You have to look out for you because you can't trust God. He's withholding. God's withholding. He's keeping all, he's got a secret stash, trust me. He's just raising the suspicions, right? The distrust. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. You must not even touch it or you will die. I don't remember that part. Verse four, you will certainly not die, said the serpent to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Weren't they already like God? He's sowing seeds saying, hey, you have poverty, you have lack, you don't have what you need. They did have what they needed. They had everything they needed for life. Is it true that their eyes would be opened if they ate the fruit? 
It was true. And their eyes were opened. Their eyes were opened to something harmful. The, the knowledge of good and evil is not inherently bad. Thank you, Kate. It's just inherently God's. Our role, our role is to be loved in love. That's our role. And to entrust all judgment to God. That's our role as humans. Be loved, live in love, entrust all judgment to God. And we would, I believe, have grown up in our knowledge and understanding gradually as we increased in our stature in God's love. Whatever we would have needed, God would have taught. We would have learned it in union, in relationship with the Father. But knowledge, as I've been saying, I've been, hint, I've been dropping hints like every Sunday for like six weeks now, that when we're educated way beyond our level of spiritual growth, it kills us. It's dangerous, right? Like the Orthodox priest had that big, thick encyclopedia of theology called the rudder for his denomination. And this new convert said, hey, can I read the rudder? And the guy said, no, it's bad for you. And he said, but don't you have a copy? I do, and I try never to read it if I can avoid it. But it's the deep theology of our denomination. Yeah, and it's bad for you. You should stay away from it. Unless you want to be in trouble. Well, the guy got a, hand, got, got a hold of a copy, started reading it, and the next thing you know, all of, he started writing letters to his pastor that you're a heretic and you're wrong about this and you're wrong about that, and eventually he left the whole church. Because when we're educated so far beyond our level of genuine spiritual growth... It's dangerous. They weren't created perfect, guys. They weren't created complete. You've heard me say this a hundred times in here. They weren't created perfect. They were created, oh, looks like I need to say it more, innocent. Innocent. Big difference. They were meant to grow up into completion, and the whole time, in their innocence, no mistake that they would have made would have ever broken fellowship with God. I'm not saying they didn't make mistakes before this, but no mistakes brought them shame and death. Are you with me? Yeah. Remember that warlock looking dude that I talked about meeting on the streets of Columbus who said that his father, the devil, was telling the truth in this story, but my father, God, was a liar? Remember that story? I keep saying, do you remember stuff that I said? And like, I'm not just, I'm not, I'm just not getting a lot of positive... Uh, which gives me full permission to just repeat myself a lot. Just repeat yourself a lot. The warlock looking dude with the big black robe and the big old like Gandalf staff and like that dude who was like, my father, the devil. He says, my father, the devil told the truth because my father said, you won't surely die. And your father said, you will surely die. And they didn't die. But that warlock dude was wrong because their innocence died that day. And, and, and really, guys, your innocence died that day. My innocence died that day. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then, verse 7, the eyes of both of them 
were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Verse eight, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord. That had never happened before. They hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden, but the Lord, verse nine, called to the man, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? Have you eaten from the tree? I'm sorry, I'm skipping ahead. Verse 10. He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Verse 11. And God said, who told you? Who told you? You were naked. Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? There, you shouldn't know that. How do you know that? The only way you can know that is two ways. Either someone told you or you ate from the tree. They suddenly, yeah, and you know the rest of the story. They suddenly felt shame. Yeah, because she says the devil may, you know, the, the man says, it was the woman who you gave me, who you gave me. So it's really God's fault too, by the way. You know, and when I'm muttering against Carrie, sometimes it's the woman got you. It's the woman you gave me, right? Yeah, sorry, friend. But everyone's blaming, so everyone's got a pointed finger. It was the woman you gave me. And the woman's, it was the devil. And the devil's like, mm, you know. <laughs> they suddenly felt... They, no, they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. It's a brand new experience. Humanity had never, never gone there before. They were naked the whole time, but it had never been a problem. So what changed when they ate the fruit? Did God change? No, he shows up on time, doesn't he? Does, he, does it change what he sees when he looks at us? Oh man, my whole life I've heard the church tell me that God's too holy to look upon evil and that, that we've got to have Jesus be murdered because God's in a bad mood now, now that we... Thank you very much. So they changed. God didn't change, they changed. You changed, I changed. From dependence on love, from trust, from God, union with God as my center, to independence, my thoughts, my, my, my feelings, my opinions, self-centered, from love to judgment, from life to what I think is right. So shame resulted along with hiding, covering, proving, insecurity, anxiety, resentment, distrust, blame shifting, earning, living down, preemptive strikes, abandonment issues, and a lifelong search for significance that leaves us constantly wanting more and nothing's ever enough. This is the birthplace at least according to the whole family of Christian theologians, this is the birthplace of all sin 
and all religion. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is where religion comes from. We usually consider the knowledge of evil negative and the knowledge of good positive, don't we? I guess I'll repeat myself. We usually consider the knowledge of evil bad and the knowledge of good good. Correct? Thank you. But the parable Jesus told in Luke 15 about the two lost sons shows how in the tree the knowledge of good and evil are both empty. The younger son is the knowledge of evil. I will get free. I need to find life and it's not here. So he goes off in rebellion and there's no life in it. It's empty. The older son stays home and says, I'm going I'm to do the right thing. He's just as lost. They're, too lost. They're both lost, rebellion and religion. Two flip sides of the same coin of being in the flesh, of being lost, of being alienated, of not having life. Two ways of trying to find yourself and still not succeeding, trying to find what life's for, trying to find love, trying to make an identity. Both empty, rebellion and religion, good and evil. And the gospel represented by the father in that story is something else completely. The free gift of life. You just are loved. You just are. The story about the two trees in the middle of the garden is much more than just literally true. It's... Myth is truer than fact. Yeah. Well, hold on. Don't use the word myth the way regular people use the word myth the way it's technically used by literature people. A myth is a story that has deep life truths built into it. It's historically true, but who cares? That's not the important part. The important part is the, is the fact that this story is universally and existentially true. In other words, this story isn't about Adam and Eve, guys. It's about you. It's about you. Are they real people? Yeah. Do I believe they're literal historical people? I do. Does that matter? No. What matters is the deep universal truth in this story. Was there, were, there two, were there trees in the garden? Sure. But that's not the point. The point is there's two trees right smack dab in the middle of your life. Every day you get to choose them. Which one? In one of them there's no life. In one of them there is. If that story didn't have enduring eternal significance to your life, they wouldn't have retained it. Are you with me? Don't get all locked up in whether it was historically true. I just told you I think it was. My point is it's more true than that. There are still two trees in your garden, in the middle of your garden. And most of us are intensely involved in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Addicted to it. Seeing through its lens. Even as we come to Jesus. One of the most profound questions that the Lord ever asked me was right out of the story. He said, who told you you were naked? Who told you you were naked? In other words, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. The father said, it wasn't me, Tim. It wasn't me. My kingdom isn't into condemnation, accusation, and judgment. That's not what I'm about. I'm not into that. That's not my kingdom. Genesis 3.21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. His first reaction is not, oh, my word. 
Now I'm going to punish you. He did set limits, didn't he? He did. He set limits. Why? Because he didn't want them to eat from the tree of life in that condition and live forever separated from God. But he provided, cover, he provided skins to cover over their shame. And I said this recently, Galatians 3.27, Paul draws the connection, the garment of flesh, that the clothing God provided is Jesus. He's not into that condemnation business. He's not the one exposing my shame and, and accusing me on the basis of it. That's not his kingdom. Who told you you were naked? It wasn't me. He's the one covering our shame and restoring our innocence. But when we're rooted in that wrong tree, not only do we get covered in shame, but we become judgmental. Years ago, Carrie said to me, when I, Tim, when you come out of your prayer closet, you're such a jerk. I was like, well, that ain't good. That's, that's the opposite of the response that I should be getting. It's important to reflect on those kinds of experiences. Why, why, why? What's going on with that? Well, when my zeal for the Lord is rooted in covering what I'm afraid might be true about me with what I hope is true about me, it's the wrong tree. When when my zeal is rooted in trying to be right, make myself right, then that energy that I bring with me into that time when I come back out into the world, I'll have eyes, since I'm trying to be right, I'll have eyes to see what's wrong in the world. That's, that's what I have eyes for. Now I'm trying to give you podcasts to fix you and Bible verses to fix you and I want that person to do this and go into that class and everything's wrong and it's my job to set it right. And if everyone would just get like on my program, we could get this kingdom to come. Oh, wow, we just really want to come to that church. Such an exciting time. I had my prayer time. Why don't you have your prayer time? I cleaned up my stuff. Why don't you clean up your stuff? I kicked that bad habit. Why didn't you kick that bad habit? I showed up for the thing. How come you didn't show up for the thing? I do all this. How come you don't have to do all this? Can you hear the older brother? All this time I've been sleeping for you, and then this son of yours comes, and you killed a fatted calf. I'd like to smash both of you but I'm right and you're wrong. I, look at, meanwhile, look at Jesus. Meanwhile, look at Jesus. Luke 15, one and two. Now sinners, notorious sinners, constantly loved to come hang out with Jesus and they hung on his every word. Whoa, hold up, what? They didn't hang on the Pharisees every word, did they? But they sure hung on, why? Look, guys, he never ate from that tree. So he doesn't have eyes to see what's wrong with the world. He has eyes to see what's right with the worst sinner. He doesn't even see sinners. You know what he sees? Lost sons and daughters. He didn't die because he was so furious. He died to get the sin off you so he could reveal the son that was underneath. He saw a treasure buried in a field so he sold everything he had to, get the, to buy that field so he could get to that treasure. But when I'm rooted in the wrong tree, I'm trying to be right and measure what's right and I only have eyes to see what's wrong in the world and then I go around saying that the world is going to hell in a handbasket. 
And all it's revealing is I don't, I don't see what he sees. He sees the kingdom coming. Amen. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the perverse and godless who has a defiled conscience, nothing is pure. Because he's sinless, he sees your righteousness and sees your value. He's not trying... You're not a project to be fixed, friend. Consider Paul's story. One time, Paul referred to himself as the worst sinner, the chief of sinners. Remember this? And then he said, here's why. I persecuted the church. Why was he persecuting the church, y'all? Did he believe what he was doing was right? 100%. Did he believe what the church was doing was wrong? He was trying to fix the world. The problem with the world, not enough me. Oh, I see Christians like that. I see me like this with, mm, help Jesus. Don't, don't look at me. Then he encountered Jesus. And he realized that his virtues were actually sins. And then he realized that Jesus loved him at his lowest point. And being loved at your lowest point, knowing that the thing you're most proud of is the thing that you should be the most ashamed of, and then seeing things as they are, and being loved at your lowest point, changes you differently. It makes, it just, now you, now you come out of the prayer closet, you're no longer trying to make the world like you. You're trying to connect the world to the grace you've found. Because I'm not your answer. You being like me is not your answer. You and me, we're like people who were wandering in the desert with no water and we found a spring. If I found a spring and it saved my life, now I want to help you find that. I'm not here to judge you. I'm here to help. Because we, we're both going to die without water. You don't need to be more like me, but man, I sure hope you find what I found. I don't need you to be like me because I'm still all kinds of wrong in so many ways. But I found something and I'm finding life in it. He changed trees. He was motivated by being right and making others get right. Now he's motivated by love. Now he says, you know what? I no longer regard, regard anyone from a human standpoint because I know Jesus died for all, therefore everyone's worth the blood. So now the only thing I see when I look at you is what he sees when he looks at you. He switched trees. Paul switched trees. His logic is if he can save me, wow, he can save anyone. Two trees. One of them is the tree of being right. Being right as righteousness. I've, oh man, this is Jesus' competition with most of us. That we think our righteousness is that we believe and do right. That's his competition. That's Jesus' competition in the war for our hearts. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'm right. I'm being right. I'm doing right. I'm believing right. And this mindset then gets born in the church and it's literally from the wrong tree and it gets born in Christians everywhere and we try to find the right way to do things. What's the right way to do this? What's the right way? What's the right way to educate the child? Is it homeschool? Is it Christian school? Is it public school? Is it Montessori? What's the right way? What's the right way to do alcohol? Should we never drink? Should we only drink with Christians who can handle it? Should we, should we make sure that we, you know what, let's do whatever we want and just hope Tim doesn't find out, you know what I mean? 
what's the right way to structure your marriage? Which philosophy, which new parenting book, which new marriage book, which new... How do, what's the right way to, for a Christian to dress? What's the right thing to believe about the end times? What's the right way to vote? What's the right way to be baptized? Can we do it triple dunk? Is it one dunk? Is it in three names? Is it in Jesus' name? What if the wrong person did it? Is it still valid? Are you really saved? Huh? Huh? Are you? Huh? Huh? Are you? Huh? Better get baptized at least two more times to try to make sure. What's the right way to sing to God? What's the right kind of music? Is it Bethel? Bethel's bad. You know, it's demonic. Oh, my goodness. Is it hymns? Is it praise choruses? Oh, my word. Can Christians listen to rock and roll music? Oh, my God, I've got to have a demon. What's the right way? What's the right denomination? Should we become Roman Catholic? Should we become Orthodox? Should we become Baptist? Should we become Presbyterian? Should we become Methodist? Should we become Pentecostal? Should we become Church of God? What are we going to do? 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 What's the right way? It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then you get more committed to what you're sure is biblical and at the end of the day, you're less loving than when you started. You got one job, love. And the more biblical you get, the less loving you get as you're more sure you're right. And revival means other people becoming like me. Lord, save us from us. Love says something very terrifying to religious mindsets. Love says, it depends. What's the right way to educate the child? It depends. Depends on the child, depends on the family, depends on the schools available, depends on so many factors. Depends. It depends. It depends. It depends. Pray through. Walk, walk it out. I don't know. It depends. There's no one right answer and there's no guarantees. You can do all the things right and... Th- it still ends up in disaster. You can do everything wrong and get one thing right, and then the whole thing works somehow magically because of grace. It depends. What's the right way to conduct your marriage? I don't know. You're different people. You, you have different history. You have so many factors. There's some biblical wisdom, but it depends. I know that if you miss love, you, you miss the whole boat. What's the right way to vote? What's the right way to pray? What's the right way to witness, fast, sing, budget, read the Bible? Last week, one of you asked me, Hey, you said an hour. You said we should read an hour. I can't do an hour. And I said, okay. Well, that was me just setting a goal. You know, I don't want to be like a a trainer at the gym that's like, all right, week number one. Let's load you down with 300 pounds and see what you do with that. Can you do it? Oh, you can't? Oh, well, I can. You must be a bad Christian. No. It's just a goal. Pick what works for you, a sustainable pace. You, not me. You, not me. Need to figure out what works for you. What load you can carry. What's sustainable? Because if you pick, take off, bite off more than you can chew, the next thing you know is you'll quit cold turkey and now you got no Bible in your life. You know? Tortoise and hare, you know what I'm talking about? You're not, you don't, obli- don't follow my conscience. You follow your conscience. You don't even have my call. You have your call. It depends. Here's what I say. We can offer people wisdom, but you are not me. So I and you have to entrust each other to the Lord and say, okay, Jesus, they're yours. Can you lead them well? Right? You go, oh, no, that's chaos. No, it's not chaos. It's not. It's very biblical Christianity is what it is. 
If we love well and make mistakes, which we all do, but we love well, we can get a well done from the master. But if we get it all the right way to do it, but miss love, then we're just going to be that kid in hell who won, a, who won an award for knowing the most Bible verses. Look at my little plaque. Uh, it's hot in here, though. I don't know. That's not really helpful. So back in like 2015, um, the Lord randomly said to me, there were two trees in the garden and they represent two covenants. And I said, well, that doesn't sound right to me. If that's true, Lord, then how's come I never heard a sermon about it? How's come I've never read a book about it? How's come in eight years of theological education, I've never heard a single lecture about it, if that's true? But then I began to read it, research it, reflect on it, think about it, process it, and it was really cool and helpful. I started to see it everywhere. I'm like, oh my word, that's that tree. Oh my word, that's that tree. Oh, this is so helpful. We've had these two options from the very beginning. Huh. And then I discovered Rick Joyner wrote a book called There Were Two Trees in the Garden, all about this. And then I discovered Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of my heroes, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he had this huge book called Ethics. And in the introduction of his book called Ethics, he says, be careful with this book because ethics is not where life is found. Life is found in love, a love relationship with God. He said, ethics are the unique uh, property of God, so be careful with my book. I was like, oh my word, he gets it. He got that right out of Genesis 2 and 3. And then I discovered Greg Boyd's book, Repenting of Religion, fantastic. He wrote it because he was taken to the mall by his wife. It's a, it's, a, it's a horrible trial for any husband to endure, to be taken to the mall with your, with your wife. And as he was in the purgatory outside Victoria's Secret, just sitting on a bench, because if he goes in there and like picks things out, other people would be like, perv. So he just sits out on the bench, you know. I'm probably, I'm probably getting a little evangelistic with the story. Or was this about me? We'll never know. So... As he's sitting on the bench, he's walking, watching people at the mall. And, and he doesn't even have to decide to do this. He, it just happens. As he's watching people, one person walks past and he goes, ugh, lay off the burgers. And somebody else walks past and he goes, oh, what a sweet couple. They must be great parents. I bet they know Jesus. And then another family goes by and he rolls his eye, oh, my word. They should not be allowed to even have children. And then, you know, another lady walks past and he's like, ah, oh, lay off the makeup, lady. You're going to attract the wrong kind of attention, though, with those clothes as well. And the Lord interrupted his judging because that's what he was doing, right? Yeah. Snap judgments. But he doesn't know any of these people, but he thinks he has a good read on, I've got the gift of discernment, pastor. And the Lord says, why are you doing that? And he goes, I I guess maybe I must be deriving some sense of who I am out of pointing out what's wrong with them or what's right with them. I don't know. And then, and then the Lord said, is that, I didn't tell you to judge everyone, did I? No. What did I tell you? I told you to bless everyone. Yeah. He said, said oh. So he began to actively pray for every single person he laid eyes on. Blessings. Blessings. 
Pray the Lord's blessings on them. Pray, pray the Lord's love on them. Pray, pray that they would thrive. Just pray good things, just blessings, just blessing everyone. And as he began to do that, something began to happen. Amen. His heart began to shift to see their value. Isn't that interesting? That as he obeyed, his eyes began to be open. I got lyrics to a song I wrote here, but I'm trying to think about how to land this plane. I'll read them to you. First, we learn the Father, and then we learn ourselves, because his love's the foundation of us loving someone else. All of us were selfish, defend, distrust, and blame, but grace sees past the worst in us, and love removes the shame. And then the chorus is, God, you love me. I receive, just that, over and over. God, you love me, I receive. God, you love me, I receive. Second verse, rooted in the wrong tree, experts in right and wrong, but Jesus took our worst to bring us home where we belong. We set out seeking knowledge, but ended up with hardened hearts like helpless newborn babies. We've arrived back at the start. Chorus, God, you love me, I receive. Final verse, unlearning what life taught us, you are renaming every scar. No child is loved for doing. We're loved for who we are. You know, Jesus 2,000 years ago said, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. It seems to me like we've spent the last 2,000 years trying to be right. How about, new plan, we spend the next 2,000 years becoming love? We ain't got nothing better to do.